All the time, that's right. Amen. Hey, it's a great class, isn't it? Isn't it fun being in this class? Huh? It really is. Now, did I see Nolene here? She's not as sweet as she used to be, though, is she? <coughs> huh? Those of you who have just heard, Nolene discovered she had sugar diabetes. <coughs> but you're feeling better, aren't you, Nolene? Huh? I bet you're feeling... You're welcome. Hey, let's turn to uh, Daniel chapter 9. We have a very exciting section. Nellene, what did you want to say? Oh, Benny called you sugar? Well, <coughs> Benny doesn't know the real Nellene, does it? <laughs> well, I'm glad that uh, Dr. Jerry Johnson is here today because uh, he will not have to come into my classroom or send the dean into my classroom to give me an evaluation. <coughs> He'll get to uh, find out whether I can teach the Bible at all. But this is, in my opinion, at least the second portion of chapter 9 of Daniel is one of the most difficult sections to interpret. And it can be very confusing, but we're going to try to uh, make some sense out of verses 24 through 27 in a few moments. But if we look at chapter 9 as a whole, we'll discover that it's divided into two sections. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 would be section 1, and it deals with Daniel's prayer. And then, uh, from cha uh, verse 20 through 27, we have the answer to Daniel's prayer, which comes by the way of a prophecy. So that's how we're going to divide our study this morning. And let's look at verse 1. We're going to look at Daniel's prayer. And first of all, notice the setting in which Daniel prays. It says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This event and this prayer takes place immediately after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, the Medes invade Babylon, and King Darius takes over the throne. At this point, David is about 80-plus years of age. He may be about 85 years of age, in fact. I would say that he is as old or older than most of the people in this class, and yet God's not finished with him. He is still serving as prime minister in the empire, and he begins to pray. Now, look at the circumstances surrounding this prayer. Look at verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, understood... By the books, notice plural, literally, I understood by the scrolls, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel, as he is reading the scrolls of Jeremiah, gains understanding about Israel's captivity, and he discovers by reading those scrolls that Israel will be in captivity for 70 years. Now what I want us to do is I want us to look at the very passages that Daniel himself read when he came to this understanding. So if you'll mark your Bible here at Daniel chapter 9 and go over to Jeremiah, you're just going to go back two or three books and find Jeremiah chapter 25. Through a revelation, by reading these books, Daniel discovers that Israel will be in bondage for 70 full years. Jeremiah chapter 25, and look at verse 11. Jeremiah 25 and verse 11. Jeremiah the prophet says, This whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. When people walk by, they're going to say, what happened to this place? It's absolutely desolated. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, watch, 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when the 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon, and we know that happened, 
the handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar, the Medes invade. And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring upon that land all my words which I pronounced against it. All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning the nations. And so that's one of the scrolls that Daniel read, and he came to realize that Jerusalem would be in bondage for 70 years. Let me show you the second scroll that he read. Turn over to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Go down to verse 10. Jeremiah 29, 10. And thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, meaning Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, uh, says the Lord. And so here he says that he's going to eventually take them back to Jerusalem. And you will seek me, verse 13, and you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place which I caused you to be carried away captive. So here Daniel reads these passages of Scripture, and he realizes that the Jews are going to be in captivity for 70 years, and he also realizes that the captivity now is coming to an end. Seventy years is just about to appear on the scene, and Daniel is absolutely concerned. And the reason he's concerned is because the people of Israel have not learned one lesson from their captivity. They're still in idolatry. They're still breaking the Sabbath. They've intermarried with the Babylonians. They've learned no lesson whatsoever. And he's afraid that now that the 70 years are concerned, God may prolong that 70 years since the people haven't learned the lesson that God intended for them to learn. And so what he does is he decides he will go to the Lord in prayer, crying out for the mercy of the people, that God will spare them another 70 years or maybe even a far worse fate. So look over at Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at the prayer of Daniel that he prays on behalf of these rebellious people. And I want you to notice, first of all, there's preparation for the prayer. In verse 3 says, then I set my face toward the Lord God. Notice the first thing Daniel does is he gets focused. It says he, he fixes his face on the Lord. That means that he turns toward Jerusalem, toward the holy city. And this is intentional preparation. And he gets down on his knees and he focuses his attention toward the Lord before he prays. Now, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that many of us do not get our prayers answered is we don't even prepare for prayer like Daniel did. Notice it says he focuses his eyes on the Lord. But what we do is we pray on the run. We don't even focus our mind on the Lord when we're praying. Our, our mind is cluttered with a bunch of stuff we heard Pastor Mac talk about that this morning. Our minds wander. Our minds are a thousand miles away when we pray. And we get distracted, don't we? Something distracts us, and as a result, I'm convinced oftentimes our prayers don't reach any higher than the ceiling. And that's going to be the difference between Daniel's prayer and many of our prayers. His prayer gets answered, and many of our prayers don't get answered. And I think it's because he prepares, he focuses his eyes on the Lord. Now, Martin Luther said that the greatest lesson he ever learned about prayer, he learned from his dog. Now, Martin Luther was the father of the Reformation. But he said he learned to pray by watching his dog sitting at the supper table, waiting for a morsel of meat. And he said that dog had its mouth opened and its eyes fixed on every bite of food that I would take. And he said the children would say, here, Fido, here, Fido. And that dog wouldn't move. Now, if you have a dog that's a table beggar, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? 
You can poke the dog, you can do, but guess what? That dog's attention is fixed on the meat because he knows there's going to be a time when you're going to go, and he wants to be ready to go, just like that. Isn't that right? So he never gets his attention off of the meat. It's focused. And Martin Luther said, if we prayed with the same intensity that my dog focuses his eyes on that meat, if we would focus our eyes on God, we'd have our prayers answered. And I believe he's right. But to do that, guess what we have to do? It means we're going to have to get away from all the noise and the clutter. We have to turn the television off. Have to repair our hearts and our minds before we pray to the Lord. We have to focus our attention. And that's very important. Someone said that uh, God will never refuse a petition of a believer who is willing to go as far as heaven to ask for it. Our problem is we never, oftentimes, our petitions don't make it to heaven. They only get as high as the ceiling because we really don't get God's attention. So Daniel gets God's attention, and there's no doubt about it. And look what he does. Notice he's not only focused. Notice how earnest he is. He said, Then I set my face toward the Lord to make prayer and supplications. And supplication simply means entreaties. He prays over and over again. It's not going to be a short prayer. But notice how he prays. Notice the earnestness. With fasting. I don't think that this prayer is going to be a 90-second prayer. I think this prayer is going to last through lunch. And he's not planning on eating this day. He prays with self-denial. Look at this. And he prays with sackcloth and ashes. That's how a Jew would dress when they mourned over sin. And they wanted to humble themselves before God in repentance. And so here we see the earnestness of Daniel's prayer. He does not intend to get up until God answers. It's what the old-time Methodists used to call praying through. When was the last time you ever prayed through? Where you didn't stop praying until you had the answer. And once you had the answer, once you had the assurance that God heard, then you got up, but you didn't get up until then. Now, I think that we have problems in our lives, and we have concerns. We have children. We have people we know who need salvation. We're certainly concerned about that. Why is it that we're not willing to pray through and be as earnest as Daniel was in his prayer? It's a question all of us need to ask. Now, look at the content of the prayer, because it's very interesting. Look at verse 4, and we're going to sort of move through the prayer very quickly at this point, because the details of the prayer are not as important as the big theme of the prayer. But look at the content. He said, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Now what he's doing is reminding God that he had made a covenant with Israel and he made a promise that he was going to let them go in 70 years, and so he just wants to remind God of that. And then look what he does. He confesses sin. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquities. We have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from your your precepts, your commands, and your judgments or your laws. Now, it's interesting to me that Daniel confesses sins, but he says we have done that. Now, I know that Daniel was not a rebellious person. We know from the age of 15 onward, he served the Lord, didn't he? He was willing to go into the lion's den rather than rebel and break God's commandments. So Daniel's not really describing himself. Who's he describing? Israel, he's describing the nation. Daniel's part of the faithful remnant. that's always remained faithful to the Lord. And yet Daniel realizes that this is the condition of the nation as a whole, and he identifies himself with the nation, and he intercedes on their behalf. This is an intercessory prayer. And, you know, when you start, when you stop reading a verse for a few moments, and you just sort of meditate on a verse, that's when the practical implications really come to you. Because we know for these 70 years, God's blessed Daniel, hasn't he? But he's judged Israel. 
And uh, if you're part of the remnant, and no matter what's going on in the nation, guess what? God can really bless you. But when God does decide to judge the whole nation, it's going to affect you one way or, or another. Even though in the midst of the blessing, guess what? Daniel has been taken away into Babylon. So it's still affected him. And when God judges America, if he chooses to do so, and I believe that he's done it already, like with the terrorists, I think that's a judgment. You say, well, why do you think that? Because God's in control of the universe, that's why. And it's affecting us, but yet we can still be blessed in the middle of it. But you know what happens? In the midst of our blessings, we should still be concerned about what's going on around us. And we should identify ourselves with America, as Daniel does with his nation, and we should be interceding and confessing the sins of our nation, even though we may not be involved in them. I have a friend who said that uh, when the Black Caucus stood up and said, white Americans should confess slavery, that he said, I don't think we should, we should confess slavery. We weren't involved with slavery. I wasn't a slaveholder. My father wasn't a slaveholder. My grandfather wasn't a slaveholder. You can't confess and repent for something that you didn't do that happened a generation before. I would beg the difference and say, oh, yes, you can. Daniel didn't do any of these things, but guess what he's doing? He's confessing on behalf of the nation. He says, we have sinned against you. You see that? Now, I know that's a hard message and we don't like it, but that's the truth. Why do you think Jesus was baptized? By John. John preached a baptism unto repentance. Did Jesus have to repent? But he was baptized because he identified himself with the nation. And so Daniel intercedes on behalf of his nation. And look at verse 6. He says, Neither have we heeded your servant, servants, the prophets. We haven't listened to what Jeremiah said and Isaiah said. Who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. You're always right, always just, always fair. But to us, confusion or shame of face, that's what belongs to us. We should be ashamed of ourselves. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those near and those afar off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O oh Lord, to us belongs confusion or shame of face to our kings and our princes and our fathers. Why? Because we have sinned against you. And so Daniel's confessing the sins of the nation. Now look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we rebelled against him. Look at this. We rebelled, but guess what God does? He's merciful and forgiving. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. So Daniel's confessing the sins. He said, this is what we've done. Now, as a result of that, there's a consequence. Therefore, look, because of the sin, therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Well, what's he talking about? A curse has been poured out on us. Well, according to Deuteronomy 28, God said, I'll make a covenant with you if you will obey my laws, blessing. If you will break my laws, cursing. And so Daniel says, What's happened in these past 70 years is a curse that you've poured out upon the nation of Israel because we've broken your laws. Look at verse 12. And he confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing us, look, by bringing us, bringing upon us a great disaster. Wait a second. Who brought upon them the great disaster? Look, God did that. 
bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such as has never been done, as what has been done to Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet, we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Despite all this judgment, we are still in the same state that we were 70 years before. That's why Daniel is praying on behalf of the nation. What have we learned as a nation here in America as a result of all the tragedy that's come on our country? Have we learned one thing? Probably not. So what does that mean we should be doing? Those that have a relationship with God. We should be praying for our nation. It's very important that we do that. Now look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. Look at this. And brought it upon us. Who brought it upon them? The Lord brought it upon them. What did he bring upon them? An invasion from a foreign power. Now, will he hold the foreign power responsible? Absolutely. Guess what he does to the foreign power? He judges them too. But God used them for his purpose. Middle of verse 14. For the Lord our God is righteous. Oh, I don't like God doing that. I like just the God of love. Well, I'm sorry. He's also a God that's righteous. In all the works that he... Wait a second. He's righteous in what? All the works that he does. You mean when he brings judgment upon people? Yeah, that's the, he does the right thing. Though we have not obeyed his voice. Now, let me tell you how bad it was when Babylon invaded Israel. How bad do you think it was? We always think, ah, oh, invade, they lose. Captivity... The siege of Jerusalem took 32 months. Not one day on September 11th. 32 months. The Babylonians cut off the Jewish food supplies. And the people began to starve. And finally, they started eating each other. They turned to cannibalism. Now let me just show you just a little snippet of how bad it was. Would you mind me showing you that just for a moment? Okay, keep your finger here, and I want you to just go back like you did before, only go back a little bit further, go back rather uh, to Jeremiah and then Lamentations. You'll find Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. <clears throat> Look at Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Let me show you how bad God's judgment was upon Jerusalem when the Babylonians invaded. Lamentations chapter 4, and look at verse 4. Now that's what the whole book's about, but we're just going to look at a few verses. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth. Why is that? For thirst. Don't even have water. Don't even have clean water. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies, rich people, are desolate in the streets. They've become street people. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. But this one's going to take 32 months. If it were only over in a moment. Her Nazarites, those who have this close relationship with God, were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They haven't even had a bath in a month. They go unrecognized in the street. Their skin clings to their bones, their skin and bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger 
for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's how bad it was. And they still haven't learned their lesson. And Daniel prays on behalf of his people that God somehow will show them mercy at the end of these 70 years. Now go back to Daniel chapter 9. Quite sobering, isn't it? What's happened in our country is minor compared to what happened in the capital city of the Hebrew people. Now look at verse 15. Daniel chapter 9, 15. He says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Notice how he confesses the sins of the people. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Notice, Lord, I'm confessing the sins of my fathers of past generations. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and let the Lord, for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. That's the temple which has been left desolate. Notice he asked God to answer the prayer, not because of them, but for his sake. You see that? Oh my God, incline your ear, and hear, open your eyes, and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, the city of God. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and for your people are called by your name. Now, that's Daniel's prayer. That's a very emotional prayer, isn't it? I think it is. If you look, like, for example, at verse 4, look what he says. I prayed to the Lord and made confession. Here's what he said. Oh, Lord. Look at verse 7. Oh, Lord. Look at verse 8. Oh, Lord. Verse 15. Oh, Lord. You see it? 16. Oh, Lord. See? 17. Our God. 18. Oh my God. Verse 19. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. This is a man who is pouring out his soul on behalf of the people. The most intense prayer may be in the entire Old Testament. And so that's the prayer of Daniel. Now, beginning in verse 20, we see the answer to Daniel's prayers. Now, how many times when we pray do we expect to get an answer? The same day. Well, maybe if we prayed like this, we would. Instead of just making all of our prayers for the whole day before our meals. Do you know the average pastor, this was a study done by George Barna in his survey group, the average pastor prays less than five minutes a day. And if you assume that he prays for breakfast, lunch, and supper, His prayer life isn't too strong. Now, if that's the average pastor, what do you think the average Christian's like? Maybe that's why we don't see God's hand the way we should see it. Now, let's look at the answer. Look at verses 20 through 23, the answer to Daniel's prayer. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications or my entreaties before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, meaning for my the city. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, and this is the angel, but he appears evidently in sort of a human form, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you 
skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, I want you to notice several things about this answer. Okay? First of all, I want you to notice that the answer to Daniel's prayer comes quickly. Look at verse 20. Now, while I was speaking. You see that? Look at 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer. Look at 23. At the beginning of your supplication. As soon as he started praying, God was answering. As soon as he started praying, God was answering. So, here we see that the answer comes quickly. Now, notice, however, that the answer comes through an angel. Right? It says, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to answer the prayer. Now, I don't know how you think God answers prayers, but one of the ways that God answers prayers is through angels. You know Acts 12, Peter was in the prison, and God, an angel came and fetched Peter from the prison. You know that story? But what fetched the angel? It says the prayers of the church because James had been beheaded the day before and Peter was going to be beheaded the next day and the chair went, the church went to prayer and God answered the prayer by sending an angel and the doors were open and Peter walks out of the jail. So God answers through an angel. That's the means, which is very interesting. Now he may not do that all the time, but he certainly does that sometimes. Notice the reason why the prayer was answered. The reason why the prayer is answered. Look in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, look at this. For, here's the reason, because you are greatly, what? Beloved. God answered his prayer because Daniel had a relationship with him, a relationship between a father and a son, greatly beloved. The word actually means a precious treasure. And there's another occasion where Daniel is called beloved by the Lord. Now look at the purpose for sending the angel. The purpose for sending the angel. Look at the end of verse 22. It says, I've come forth. Now watch this. I've come forth for a reason. To give you skill to understand. You see that? That's why he came forth. To give you skill to understand. Look in the middle of 23. I have come to tell you, I have come to tell you, for your greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, what in the world is the angel coming in response to prayer to, to do for Daniel? It says he's come to teach him understanding. Notice at the end of verse 23. Therefore consider the matter. What matter? Well, the matter that Daniel was praying about, Israel's fate. Consider the vision. What vision? The vision Daniel had of the 70 years as a result of reading Jeremiah's prophecy. Now we're going to come to understanding the 70 years. And this is where it gets very difficult. And this is where I don't know whether I can, I can explain it clearly or not. This is where I might fail my teaching evaluation. <laughs> because I have read commentary after commentary and this is one of the most difficult passages to explain but let's read it here is the explanation of the 70 years look at verse 24 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy City. Now, what in the world does that mean? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for the city. Well, first of all, you need to realize what the Hebrew text says. It doesn't say 70 weeks. It says 70 sevens. So what you need to do is every time you see the word weeks, you need to circle it. And you're going to see that word three times. And right over top of it, you need to put sevens. Sevens. Seventy sevens are determined for your people. Now, seventy sevens are 490. Is that right? 
So 490 are determined for your people, but 490 what? That's the $64,000 question. 77s or 490 of something are determined for your people and for the city. Now, I think we can get an answer to that part of the puzzle. If you look back at verse 2, look what it says. In the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the books of Jeremiah, the number of what? Years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish, look, 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now go back to verse 24. So the 70 represents 70 years. So over top the word 70, write the word years. 70 represents years. And the word weeks means what? Seven. So 70 years times 7 equals 490 years. And so that's what we're talking about. 490 years are determined for the people and for your holy city. So what God says through the angel Gabriel is, guess what? God's not only concerned with the 70 years of Israel's past, the Babylonian captivity. God's also concerned with Israel's future. Not for 70 years, but guess what? 70 times 7. God's concerned about Israel's entire future up through 490 years. Now, during this 490-year period, six things are going to occur. Look in verse 24. Six things will occur. Now, you still with me at this point, or have I lost you? If you're still with me, we're halfway through. You know what? Six things are going to occur during this 490-year future of Israel. Number one, to finish the transgression. God is going to bring an end to Israel's apostasy. But guess how long it's going to take? 490 years. Number two, to make an end of sins. God is going to eventually defeat Israel's sin is going to bring an end to Israel's sin, but it's going to take 490 years to make reconciliation for iniquity. God is going to restore his people back into a relationship with him during this period of time. Four, to make an ever, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That means God's going to bring in his kingdom, which we've seen throughout the entire book. Fifth, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. That vision and prophecy is going to be sealed up, and eventually it's going to be unfolded, but it's going to be sealed up for 490 years, and to anoint the most holy, which is a reference to the holy of holies in the temple. So evidently, there's going to come a time somewhere in that period when God is going to cleanse and anoint the holy of holies because it has been desecrated. These six things are going to happen in the 490 years. Now, let's move on because we're going to discover something and it's this is where it gets difficult, okay? These 490 years are not going to occur simultaneously or I should say continuously. It's not going to be like year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year 483, 484, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 490. It's not going to continue it's not going to be a continuous unveiling of time. Now, let me show you how we know this. Look at verse 25. Let me show you. This is very interesting. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command, there's going to be some command from that point of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah Prince, there shall be seven sevens, and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Now I want you to do the math with me. Look at the math in verse 25. Seven sevens, that's what? Forty-nine years. And sixty-two sevens, that's four hundred and thirty-four years, bringing us to a total of four hundred and eighty-three years. Gabriel says, 
that in 483 years, by the way, that's seven years short of 490, right? Okay, in 483 years, two things are going to happen. Notice what he says. First, there's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Look at that. From the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, we know from Nehemiah chapter 2 that Artaxerxes gave the command that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. We know that that took place in 445 B.C. And you can just read that on your own in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, from that point, using the Jewish calendar of 360 days a year, that's how they counted time, and accounting for leap years, you go from 445 B.C., and you move up in time 483 years, accounting for the leap years and the Jewish calendar, the way they account time. Look, until the second event, the prince, the Messiah, the prince, there's going to be 483 years. And we know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, 483 years had lapsed between Artaxerxes' decree and Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey proclaiming himself to be the king. So, that's the 483 years. Now, what happens after he rides into Jerusalem? Do they make him the king? No, they crucify him as king. Look at verse 26. After those 62 weeks, after that time passes, the Messiah shall be cut off. means he's going to be put to death. But not for himself. Not because he's a sinner, he will die for others. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He dies for others. So that takes care of that first period of time, 483 years. What about the last seven years? Well, a gap occurs. And this is where it gets difficult. Because the scripture says this, that there's going to be other events that take place in the last seven years, but they don't happen right after Jesus is dead. Look what it says in the middle of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he, that prince who comes, shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So, notice what happens. Three things are going to happen. It says a prince is going to come. Look into verse 26, or the middle of verse 26. Number one, he's going to destroy the city. This all takes place after Jesus has died. He's going to destroy the sanctuary. And the Jews are just going to be scattered everywhere. And then it says in verse 27, he will confirm a what? A covenant with many for a seven-year period. Now, some people say, well, that's what Titus did. Titus destroyed the city in 70 A.D. He destroyed the sanctuary in 70 A.D. But guess what Titus didn't do? Titus never established a seven-year treaty or covenant with the nation of Israel or any other nation. So I don't believe that this deals with Titus, but Titus did do something. He destroyed the temple, didn't he? And he did destroy the city. And when he destroyed the city, guess what happened to the Jews? They scattered. Now all these events are going to happen in a seven-year period. And it says the city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. That means it's going to have to be rebuilt. And he confirms a covenant, probably with the Jewish people. And that means they're going to have to be back in their nation. And guess what? They were scattered, and the Jews never got back into their nation until when? May of 1948. So we know that that event couldn't take place until at least May 1948. So... 
Now, are the Jews in their holy in the Holy Land now? Do they have a temple built? No, they don't have a temple built. That means, guess what? There's going to have to be a temple being built. Now, you know where the temple is going to be built? Yeah, right on the mount. Well, what's there now? Well, there's the Mosque of Omar is there now. Now, let's imagine that they knock down that mosque or they build the temple right next to it. You think that's going to cause good relations? You think that the Jews and the Muslims hate each other now? The Jews, if they built the temple, they'd have to be protected. And onto the scene steps a prince, meaning a leader, a world leader, and he signs a peace treaty or a covenant with the many. And I believe probably with the Muslims and with the Jews. And he says, I'll protect your sacred site. And they say, fine. And they sign that peace treaty. We don't know when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen in the future. Look what it says. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven, one seven year period. But in the middle, look at that, in the middle of the seven, at the three and a half year mark, he will bring an end to sacrifice. He'll stop this daily sacrifice in the temple and the offering. And on the wing of abominations, he's going to desecrate that temple and we know the antichrist is going to stand up proclaim himself to be god that's called the abomination of desolations and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate he's going to just wipe that thing out even until look at this the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate so, what does all this mean? That means that evidently in the future there's going to come some man or some antichrist who's going to make a covenant at the three and a half year mark. He's going to break it. He's going to go in and he's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. And all that's going to happen until, look at the end of verse 27, until God steps in and judges the whole affair. This is called the Great Tribulation period. Now notice the word desolations. At the end of verse 26, desolations. You see that word? Desolations. Look in the middle of verse 27. On the wing, the last word in 27, desolate. Last word in, or excuse me, in the middle of 27, desolate. Last word in 27, desolate. But I also want you to notice the word determined. Look in verse 24. The 77s are, look, determined. Look at the end of verse 26. Till the end of the war, desolations are what? Determined. Look at the end of 27. Even into the consummation, which is determined. God has set a date. When all of this will happen, it's all determined. And when this happens, according to God's preconceived plan, the scripture says Christ will come back and judgment will fall on the one who has desecrated the temple. And there will be a judgment. And then all six things in verse 24 will be fulfilled at the end of the 490 years. And so that's what we have. And finally, notice what will happen. He will anoint in verse into verse 24, he will anoint the holy of holies. And so it will all happen, happen as God has planned. And then the millennial reign. When's it going to happen? We don't know. When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, the disciples said, Lord, now will you restore, now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now will you do what Daniel the prophet was talking about? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. That's all been determined by my Father in heaven. He alone knows. It's all determined by God. But guess what? It will happen. Now, all this from a prayer. This is the answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel said, will you have mercy on us, Lord, in spite of our sin? And guess what God said? Yeah, I will. I'm not only concerned with Israel's 
past, I'm concerned with their future. 70 times 7. she got a lot of hard times ahead of her. But I will show mercy on her. Not for 70 years, but for 70 times 7. All because of prayer. And that's what God does for us when we pray. See, we're no different than the people of Israel. We're sinners, aren't we? Lord, how often should we forgive? Seven times, Peter says. Seventy times seven. God isn't only concerned about your past. He hasn't only forgiven your past sins. Guess what? He's concerned about your future. And he'll be merciful on you all the way up to the time of the end that he has determined for your life. And you can have full assurance because of your salvation of the one who died not for himself, but for others, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week we'll pick up at chapter 10. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a very difficult passage that we've tried to get through. And uh, Lord, help us to take home with us this day the practical lessons of what it means to, to, to fix our eyes on you and pray through until we get an answer like this. What an assurance to know for Daniel that you would not judge Israel despite their disobedience. You had a glorious future for them. It all had been determined beforehand. You did have a millennial reign, which they would walk right into. And Lord, you give us that same assurance. When we come to you, and we put our total faith in you, that our future is in your hands. It's been determined, it's been said. Oh Lord, help us to walk in that security as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.